Well, um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Great to see um, so many of you here at LSE this evening. My name is Julian Hörner. I am an LSE Fellow in EU Politics at the European Institute. And I'm very pleased to welcome Chris Bickerton to the LSE today. Chris is a university lecturer in politics at the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge and a fellow in politics at Queen's College, Cambridge. He has previously taught at Oxford, um, the University of Amsterdam, and Sciences Po in Paris. And he has written uh, book in, uh, books including European Integration from Nation State to Member States. And he also is a regular contributor to um, Le Monde Diplomatique. In his new book, Chris addresses a number of questions related to the European Union. Is it a state? Is it an empire? Is Europe ruled by Germany or by European bureaucrats? Um, does the single European economy actually exist after all these years of economic integration? And should the EU have been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2012? And perhaps most importantly, does the EU undermine democracy or foster it? And um, may I say this book is, uh, addresses this question in a very accessible and entertaining way without losing any of its uh, academic depth. And um, in any case, it couldn't come at a better time. As you will all be aware, in a little more than a week, uh, we will know whether the UK will actually stay in the European Union or, uh, or not. So there's still one week left to brush up on your knowledge of the EU before making this uh, big decision. Um, this is probably a good time to mention that um, Chris's book will be on sale um, after the event, and he will be also uh, signing copies of it. Um, before we start, a few housekeeping announcements. So um, for those of you who use Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Brexit vote, hashtag LSE Brexit vote. And I would like to ask you to put your mobile phones on uh, silent as to not disrupt, disrupt the event. And I would also like to bring your attention to the fact that the event is recorded. And hopefully we will be able to uh, provide a podcast um, subject to no technical difficulties. Um, as usual, after the lecture, so Chris will talk for about 45 minutes, then we will have uh, a round of uh, Q&A. And um, yeah, you can discuss and ask any question you would like to. But uh, now please join me in welcoming Chris Delacy to deliver his lecture entitled The European Union, A Citizen's Guide. Okay, good, good evening, everybody. Um, it's a pleasure to see uh, lots of you uh, here today. Um, now, before I start, um, I just want to give a few thanks. Um, as anybody who's written a book knows, writing a book is a, a collective endeavor. It's not something that you do uh, on your own. Um, so I want to thank my fabulous team at Penguin, Cassiana, my, my editor, uh, Emma Ball, uh, my publicist, and Claudia Toya, the marketing manager for the Pelican series, who've done a fantastic job and have made uh, publishing the book a pleasure. I have to say, writing the book uh, was less of a pleasure. It was a tough task. Um, I think, along with a number of people, I thought that the referendum uh, on the UK's membership of the EU would take place in September, or at least after the summer, sometime in the autumn. Uh, when the Prime Minister decided to hold it in June, it shaved off four months from my writing deadline. Um, and meant that I spent an absolutely miserable Christmas trying to get the book finished, uh, but it was done. Um, people often have told me that the book is very well-timed 
as if it was some sort of coincidence. Uh, it wasn't a coincidence, it was the result of a lot of hard work, and I'd like to thank my wife, Emma, who put up with my absences for a number of months um, with a lot of good grace. Now, I want to I make some initial remarks, um, and I will talk a bit about the campaign, though I suspect that uh, many of you have come here today partly to try and get away from, uh, from the campaign. Um, it's not been the most enlightening, I think, of, uh, of campaigns. Uh, those of you who are watching television today may have seen the, the boat-off on the River Thames uh, with Nigel Farage versus Bob Geldof. Um, I think that gives some sort of sense to the phrase when tragedy becomes a farce. Um, so that's the stage at which we're, uh, which we're at. Um, it's not been an inspiring campaign. Um, but I do want to say a couple of things before I really get into the subject of the, of the lecture and I think what you're interested in, which is really to try and understand what the European Union is, uh, is all about. What struck me, and it may have struck you as well, is that the EU has somehow been absent from the campaign so far. Um, now, if you remember, if we uh, project our minds back to last year, there was a period of time, a number of months, between, I suppose... Um, uh, October through to February of this year, where nobody could talk about the EU because the government was undertaking a renegotiation with the EU institutions, and business people, political voices were silenced because we had to give the government space to, um, to negotiate. You might say, fair enough. But one of the most remarkable things, I think, is that since the campaign really officially began, after this negotiation package was revealed um, uh, towards the end of February of this year, nobody has talked about it. Uh, it has not been discussed at all in the campaign, as far as I can tell, certainly not by the Prime Minister. Um, so for all of those months we were waiting for this great package that was to be the subject of, uh, of, of the campaign, the base on which the government would fight its campaign, and it's just disappeared from, from view. Now what we've had instead is that we've had people talking about lots of things but not talking very much about the European uh, Union. So those on the Remain side um, have made a very big deal, especially about the economic consequences of Brexit. And we can have a discussion of that in the questions and the, the answers. Um, it's a very speculative discussion, I have to say. Um, I don't think any economist can tell us whether UK house prices will go up or down as a result of Brexit. Both scenarios are actually quite plausible. Um, but what's interesting is the Remain campaign really has focused on the economic cons consequence of Brexit without talking very much about the, the EU. Uh, now, I quizzed a few, a few weeks ago, I quizzed a Remain campaigner. I said, look, this is a referendum on the UK's membership of the EU. Why are you not talking more about the EU? Um, and he said to me, he said, look, we did some polling. Uh, we did, some, uh, we did some, uh, some focus group work at the very beginning of the campaign. And all the results told us that there were no votes in the EU. Therefore, we're not going to campaign on the EU. That's, uh, that is a true uh, conversation, and it's quite remarkable, I think, for, um, for somebody from the Remain campaign to, to, to have said that. But the Leave uh, campaign has been quite similar. Now, as you're all aware, they've uh, made their main message about immigration. Um, now, immigration is not unrelated to the EU, uh, it's certainly related to the free movement uh, of people rules that are part of being a member of the single market. But immigration is much bigger than just the EU. Um, and I think 
at least the evidence suggests, that it's very unlikely that immigration levels would be dramatically transformed uh, once the UK has left the European Union or has left the, the single market. Um, so it doesn't tell us that much about the EU, but that has been the relentless focus of the, uh, of the Leave campaign. So the conclusion, which is not a particularly happy one, is that in some ways um, we're none the wiser about what the European Union actually is, even though we're just a few days away from, um, from the, the vote on the UK's membership of the, the EU. That's an indictment, I think, of the, of the campaign. Now, when the sides have talked about the EU, both sides, in fact, have done the same thing, which is that they've, they've grossly exaggerated uh, the role of the European Union. They've grossly exaggerated um, the, the, the actions of the European Union and the power of the European Union. Now, on the Remain side, we're often told that the EU is in some way responsible for virtually every good thing that's happened since 1945. Um, it's responsible for peace since 1945. It's responsible for prosperity since 1945. Um, we're often told, uh, for instance, that the, the UK economy will collapse if it leaves the, uh, the, the single market. And that's the message that's come from Her Majesty's Treasury. And I do uh, emphasize this. The Treasury has been historically one of the most Eurosceptical departments in the British state, um, but it has been converted wholesale to the Remain campaign. Uh, I'll say a little bit more about that towards, towards the end. So we have lots of things um, from the Remain campaign that I think exaggerate the role of the European Union. Uh, the historical record, for instance, on whether the EU is responsible for peace since 1945 is much more um, attenuated than the campaigners would suggest. Um, the EU in many ways is a consequence rather than a cause of peace. Um, in my own view, the economic boom of the 50s and 60s was probably the, the single most dramatic contributor to peace uh, in Europe, um, more than uh, the creation of the coal and steel community in the 50s or the, Treaty of, or the Treaty of Rome. But the Leave side has been just as culpable of exaggerating the role of the, the EU. Uh, if you listen to somebody like Boris Johnson, he will regularly tell you that the EU is a super-state uh, and it's trampling on the freedoms of uh, the British people. And the only way in which to preserve those freedoms is for us to leave the European Union. Now, that is simply not, uh, not, not true. It's a, it's a gross exaggeration. So let me, try and, let me try and clarify things. Let me try and put the, the European Union into some sort of context to try and relativise the importance of the European Union and to give some sort of accurate account of how it actually works and what it actually does. And not to, to play to the gallery on the Remain side or to play to the gallery on the, on the Leave side. This is what I try and do in the book. The book is not about in versus out. It doesn't tell you how to vote. It just tries to describe as realistically as possible uh, the functioning and the purpose of the European Union. That story is not always a pretty story. It's not always the one that people who criticize or who like the institution uh, would, it's not how they would tell it, but I think it's how it, how it is. Now, people often ask me, um, students often ask me, and people in general often ask me to explain to them the European Union. What is this thing that we call, uh, that we call the EU? And my answer goes something like this. Um, a useful way to think about the European Union is to think of it as a kind of mirage. Now, I think we know how a mirage works. It's something which, when you look at it on the horizon, it's very clear, very tangible, very, um, very powerful, in fact. 
But as you get closer to this mirage, it starts to shimmer and it starts to tremble. Um, and by definition, of course, when you finally get there, when you finally get to the point where you think you can reach this mirage, it disappears altogether. That's how a mirage works. The European Union, uh, believe it or not, is, is quite like that. Um, so seen from somewhere like London, um, seen from somewhere like Madrid, Paris, Budapest, Bratislava, uh, there are 28 national capitals, I won't go through all of them. Um, seen from the perspective of its member states, the EU looks a bit like that. Um, it seems like something very clear, very powerful. It has its own buildings, its own officials, its own institutions, its own laws. Uh, the EU would seem, if we think about the crisis a year ago in Greece, it would seem to be able to even close down national banking systems. But just like a mirage, when you get a little bit closer, um, it starts to shimmer and it starts to tremble. And finally, when you get to the heart of the EU, when you get to the heart of um, the European quarter in Brussels, like a mirage, it disappears altogether. And what do you find? What you find are our own leaders, our own heads of state, our own prime ministers, regularly coming to Brussels um, uh, and uh, making common decisions within the framework of the European Council. They come to Brussels every other month for official meetings, and they often come to Brussels more often when there's a crisis that has to be managed, such as the Euro crisis or the refugee crisis. We also find our own uh, ministers. Uh, they regularly come to Brussels to meet in the Council, um, in the Council of Ministers. They sign off on, on EU legislation. Um, we find our own officials. Our own officials fill the Eurostar. They fill the TGV, they fill the Talis trains, uh, they converge on Brussels and they take part in these working groups, the 300 working groups that exist within the council uh, structure, where experts, national experts, come together and discuss pieces of legislation and try and craft it and shape it so that it fits uh, better with their own specific national context. So that's, I think, what we find. Um, power is obviously delegated to... EU institutions, specific powers are delegated to EU institutions, but the heart of the European Union are its governments, our governments, our officials, our ministers. Let me just give you an example. Um, the Five Presidents Report, and this is something that Eurosceptics like to talk about. Uh, the Five Presidents Report was probably most surprising by the fact that it uh, revealed how many presidents there are in Europe. Um, you wouldn't have guessed that there are five, but there are five. Um, in actual fact, you could probably make a case for, them, for there being more than five. But the five authors of the five presidents' report include the president of the European Commission, uh, Juncker, the president of the European Council, Donald Tusk, the president of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, the president of the Eurogroup, which is the group of finance ministers of countries that are members of the Eurozone. That's Jerome Dijsselbloem, the very tall Dutchman. Um, and finally, Martin Schulz, the president of the European Parliament. Now, they all came together and they signed off on a report which is basically about the future of the Eurozone, the future of European Monetary Union. It makes some very dramatic recommendations. For instance... It recommends that there should be some sort of common European deposit insurance scheme. It also recommends that there should be a Euro, Eurozone, a Euro area treasury. Now, these are very dramatic and far-reaching recommendations. Uh, 
This report, signed off by the five presidents of uh, EU institutions, was produced with no media scrum, no media fanfare, no great photo opportunity. Um, I had a look because I wanted to put some, uh, some photos in, in this book originally, and I couldn't find a single photo of all these five presidents together brandishing their report. Um, so it was launched without much fanfare, and it simply did not go anywhere. Um, it was recognized finally in the European Council meeting in October, uh, so a few months later, and governments did the following. They took stock of the report. Now, when, when, when governments take stock of something, it means it's dead. Uh, it means they're going to completely ignore it. Um, and that's it. That's as far as the five presidents' report has gone. So if, if policies do not have the active support of member states, they do not go um, anywhere. Now, as I said, power has been transferred to um, European institutions. Um, but let's take the European Commission, for instance. Now, the European Commission has some powers to initiate legislation. It means it can propose common policies. But the European Commission is not a super state. Um, when it proposes policies, it makes very, very sure that these are policies that generally governments will be happy with. At any one time in Brussels, and this is the case at the very, uh, at the very moment that we're talking today, um, you have these things called non-papers. Non-papers circulate around uh, Brussels, and they're basically suggestions, often produced by the Commission, sometimes in collaboration with the European Parliament, and they want to get a feel for the political temperature. So our governments have representations in Brussels, known as the permanent representations. They have ambassadors there, and their job is to read these non-papers and get a sense of whether they like them uh, or not. Now, some non-papers are transformed eventually into European laws because EU uh, member states have decided that they like those ideas. Others just simply disappear, and they remain non-papers. They, they don't go anywhere. So that's really how the lawmaking process works, and the Commission doesn't act against the wishes of member states. It acts um, on the assumption that member states are happy with what it is proposing. No institution wants to get its fingers burnt needlessly, and the Commission is the same uh, in that respect. But let me just give you a few, a few illustrations of why the Commission is not a super state, in spite of all the bleating of, uh, of Eurosceptics. The number of people who work for the Commission is approximately 25,000. That's a, an upper estimate. Now, Let's put that in perspective. Around 19,000 people work for the BBC, uh, and that's after all the cuts. So it's a bit more, but not that much more. Um, around 45,000 people work for the U.S. Department of Commerce, so one branch of the U.S. government. 5.6 million people are on the payroll of the French state. So putting it in context, the European Commission is a tiny bureaucracy for 500 million people. So it's not a super state. Um, now, there is some largesse, of course, there is some largesse. Uh, people in the Commission are paid very well. They have good salaries, they don't pay a lot of tax, they have very nice pensions. Uh, it is true that the European Commissioners have extremely large offices. Uh, the average size of a Commissioner office is 75 square metres, which is more than twice the size of, a Parisian, of an average Parisian apartment. Um, I don't know if it's what the size of an average London apartment is, but I guess it's quite a bit bigger than that. So there is some largesse, uh, but in the grand scheme of things, the Commission is very, is very small. And over the years, um, the Commission has lost a lot of power. Um, if you were a junior official working in the Commission under Jacques Delors in the mid-1980s, you would have much more influ influence over making policy um, than if you were a very senior official in the Commission today. The institution has overwhelmingly gained 
in recent years, and I'd say over the last couple of decades, in power is the European Council. The European Council drives the EU forward and actually manages the EU even on a day-to-day basis on some issues. And it's made up of our uh, prime ministers, our heads of state, our heads of, heads of government. So if you look at the European Union as a whole, um, I've not mentioned the European Central Bank, but I can talk about that in questions. I'm also going to talk a bit about the European Parliament. But if we look at the European Union as a whole, we can't say that it stands above its member states and pushes them around. We can't say that it forces onto countries um, policies that they they don't accept. Um, Now, the riddle, uh, the real riddle of the European Union is to answer the question, well, why does it not look that way? Why is it that if it's not so powerful, if the institutions are not so powerful, if it's not a big bureaucracy... Um, If it's run by member states, why does it not look that way? Why do we constantly hear our politicians in this country and in other European countries telling us that they can't do things because Brussels tells them so? Now, I think the answer to that is the following, uh, which is that governments today, the governments in the UK and governments across Europe more generally, do not believe that they can rule alone. They do not believe that they can rule on their own authoritatively over their societies. They believe that they can rule only if they are part of a bigger club. And the most important club that they would like to belong to, and which they think uh, makes it possible for them to rule with confidence and authority, is the European Union. It's not the only club. There are lots of other clubs that governments like to belong to in order to be able to feel authoritative, the G20, the IMF, um, the OECD, but the EU is uh, by far in Europe and for the case of the UK the most important uh, club. Let me just give you some examples about what that means, what it means for a government not to feel that it, that it can rule authoritatively on its own. At the end of 2015 there was a national election in Portugal. If anyone Portuguese here, they might have followed these, these events. Now, this was an interesting election because the result of the election was quite inconclusive. <clears throat> and it fell to the, to the president of the country to approach uh, one of the parties and to ask them to make, a, make up a coalition. That's how uh, the political system works in, uh, in Portugal. Now, simply in terms of the numbers, the president should have approached the centre-left the centre-left had a possibility of an alliance with further-left parties that numerically would have commanded a majority within the Portuguese parliament. But the president didn't do that. He approached initially the centre-right. He gave a speech on television to all Portuguese citizens where he explained his reasoning. And what he said is that those parties on the far left that could potentially make up a coalition with the centre-left are unconstitutional. And he said they were unconstitutional because they didn't believe in Portugal's membership of NATO, they were very critical of Portugal's membership of the Eurozone, and they didn't believe in the fiscal compact that was signed by 27 EU member states in 2011. And according to the Portuguese president, that makes them unconstitutional. Now, there is nothing in the Portuguese constitution that says that Portugal must be a member of these clubs, Um, these transnational networks of of rule. Um, But clearly the president believed that the existence of Portugal as a constitutional state depended on its membership of these organisations. 
and in particular depended on its membership and its full and complete membership of the Eurozone and of the EU. And that's what I mean when I say that states today don't believe that they can rule on their own. They're not nation states, they're member states. They only believe that they can exist if they're part of this wider European club. Now, why is this the case? If, this is, uh, if we accept this as a reality, and I think the evidence is pretty compelling, you won't have, um, uh, you won't have missed the fact that in the, uh, the current referendum campaign, people have often said that the constitutional future of the UK depends on its membership of the EU. Because if it leaves the EU, then it will collapse um, as a united kingdom with Scotland leaving first. So the implication here is that there is a fundamental fragility at the heart of the British state and it's maintained by the power, this magical power of the, of the European Union. Now there are lots of explanations for why is it that governments can't rule on their own. Um, and the most conventional one is the following. <clears throat> we live in an age of global threats. These global threats range from the environment to terrorism to globalisation. And these global threats and challenges transcend borders and therefore they require our governments to work together very closely in order to be able to exercise some influence on our challenging global environment. Does that sound familiar? <clears throat> That's the standard explanation. Now sometimes it's a little bit difficult to prove whether these explanations are correct um, to attribute so much to these abstract nouns like globalisation um, is often a little, bit, um, a little bit baffling. But my own feeling is that actually the answer about why governments can't rule on their own is much closer to home. We don't have to rely on these abstract nouns, this idea of global challenges. The answer is much uh, closer to home. And the answer is this. Um, <clears throat> Governments do not feel that they can rule on their own because they do not confidently command the will of their own citizens. Democracy across Europe, not just in the UK but across Europe, has been hollowed out consistently over the last 30 to 40 years. Politicians have steadily retreated into the state. Citizens have retreated into their own private spheres. And what's left is what the Irish political scientist called the void. And the task of government, <clears throat> overwhelmingly in 21st century Europe, is how to govern across the void. That, I think, is the way politicians think of politics, and that explains why they don't have uh, this authority. In the past, I think there was a relationship of, of representation between citizens and the state. The term nation-state even implies this representation. The state um, is a representation of the nation, which is a political entity made of citizens coming together um, uh, in, a, in a political way. But today, this relationship of, <clears throat> of representation has been replaced by something else, by a relationship of antagonism, what the French call méfiance, a wariness between, uh, between the citizens and their own Politicians, And I think that characterizes state-society relations in this country and also um, in, much of, in much of Europe. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> some of you may remember, some of you may not, but back in 2008, the Irish rejected the Lisbon Treaty. Now, at the time, that was quite a, a big thing. 
And I remember, for some reason, I found myself in Brussels, in the, in the, in the press corps in Brussels, and the Irish foreign minister came, Michael Martin, um, and his brief, I guess, was to explain to journalists what had happened. And I'll never forget that meeting. He was completely baffled at what had happened, completely unable to provide any sort of convincing explanation for why, in that referendum on the Lisbon Treaty, the Irish had voted no. But as well as being baffled, he was also uh, genuinely embarrassed uh, at the result and very apologetic. He was very keen, it seemed, to apologise to his peers in Brussels for what the Irish had done and to try and patch things up. Now, this is the foreign minister of a country whose job is to represent the decisions made by his population. And what Michael Martin communicated was a mixture of bafflement, uh, embarrassment, um, and, uh, and, uh, and was very ap apologetic. And I think that tells us something about the relationship between the state and society. It's one of distance and one of misunderstanding. Now, it struck me very much following this, this campaign very closely is that we see something similar today. Um, the mainstream establishment, uh, much of which supports the Remain side, I think finds it very difficult to understand why it is that so many people think differently from themselves. And I've got a feeling, <clears throat> depending on what the result will be, but I've got a feeling that in the next few weeks we're going to have a rerun of what happened in France in 2002. Now, in France in 2002, um, the far-right candidate, Jean-Marie Le Pen, got into the second round of the presidential elections, a real uh, political earthquake. And I remember after that happened, a lot of journalists jumped into trains and travelled into the French provinces trying to discover who on earth these far-right voters were. Who were they? What were they thinking? Where did they come from? As if they were some sort of bizarre and exotic uh, species. I think something similar will happen um, after this referendum campaign where people will try and understand why so many people in this country are tempted or will vote for, for Brexit. And what that tells us, I think, is that there's a complete lack of understanding and a lack of representation between politicians and, um, and, and citizens. And let me just stress, this is not a British affair. As I've given you lots of examples, this is a pan-European thing. This crisis of confidence in politics, this relationship of antagonism between politicians and voters is entirely a European uh, phenomenon. And if you go to a country like Italy, for instance, the official opposition in Italy is made up of the Five Star Movement, which is this uh, uh, populist uh, movement that is um, banging on about the, 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 the crimes uh, that politicians commit, run by Beppe Grillo, a comedian, a very articulate and intelligent man who expresses his hatred of the political caste, la casta, as he calls them time and time again. And that's the opposition along with the Northern League, which up until recently was a separatist and very populist uh, political party. So that's the way politics is conducted in Italy, and this anti-political sentiment is really the way politics is understood and practiced um, in Italy, but also in many other parts of, parts of Europe. Now, where does this leave the European Union? What has the European Union got to do with this crisis of political authority and this crisis of, um, of political legitimacy that I think governments feel and are aware of? The European Union, I think, is probably the primary mechanism, it's not the only mechanism, but I think it's the primary mechanism by which governments manage this relationship that they have to citizens, this complicated and antagonistic relationship they have to, have to citizens. 
It explains why the European Union seems so powerful. It's not that the European Union is powerful, but it's the governments don't have the confidence um, of their citizens, and therefore they think of themselves as very, as very weak. Now, this does, I think, tell us a lot about how the European Union works, the fact that it plays this function of managing this antagonistic relationship between citizens and their governments. At one point in the book, I say that the Europe... The European Union is really a, a Europe of secrets. It is a very secretive organization. Um, there are two terms that I really emphasize in the book because there are, they, they are terms that people don't generally know about but that are fundamental to understanding the workings of the European Union. One is the system of trilogues and the other is what are known as the Antici Protocols. Now, if you don't know what these things are, I do urge you to, to, to find out before the 23rd of June because it really illustrates how the European Union works. Um, the trilogues are the following. Um, the European uh, Parliament has the powers to decide legislation along with the Council of Ministers. The European Commission often suggests policies. Now that tells us that there are three actors involved in making law in the European Union. That's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of people potentially. That could be a very slow process. The trilogues represent meetings by representatives of these three institutions such that agreements are made on legislative texts before they are discussed in any sort of plenary chamber in the European Parliament or before they're discussed um, as a public affair at all. Now often the number of people taking part in these trilogues is something like five to six people. These are not public meetings, these are secret meetings. Now 80% of European legislation today goes through this trilogue process where you have pre-agreements um, that do not then lead to plenary debates in the European Parliament. That's the way law is made in, in the European Union. It is a very secretive affair. Now, the Antici Protocols, that refers to the way information is minuted or not in the European Council. Now, as I said, the European Council is, I think, the most powerful body within the European Union and in recent years has been involved in the day-to-day -day running of the EU's affairs it's been responsible in forging a response to the, to the refugee crisis and it's been responsible in managing the Eurozone crisis. Now, these are issues that we think of as relevant to the public, relevant to us as citizens. The Antici Protocols refers to the way in which heads of state and government, when they meet in the European Council, they meet with nobody else in the room apart from one person, a diplomat, who takes notes. Every 15 minutes, he goes to another room and reads out his notes to a whole bunch of other national diplomats. They then take down their own notes. Now, this is a bizarre form of Chinese whispers, but this is, this is the only um, form of minuting that exists in the European Council. So there's no way of proving that Merkel said something to Hollande or that Hollande said something to Tsipras um, or that Renzi said something to somebody else. You can't prove that because there is no uh, evidence for it. These are very, very private and secret meetings, but they're touching on topics that are of everyday concern to European citizens. So the European Union is a secretive organization, but it's not a conspiracy. The reason why it's secretive is that it's designed and it's the result of this attempt at managing this very distant relationship that governments have to their own citizens, to their own voters, to their own electorates. Now let me, in the... Ten, ten minutes or so? Ten, um, ten minutes, yeah. Ten minutes that I've got left. Let me just try and connect this to how we can make um, some sense of the UK's uh, referendum campaign so far. 
So I think this understanding of the European Union, this understanding of this crisis of democratic authority and the role that the EU plays in managing that crisis tells us a lot about how the campaign has, uh, has evolved. So a couple of things that have struck me in the campaign. Um, one is that it, what seems to matter is who supports you, who's willing to give their backing to whatever you say. What matters isn't so much the content of the arguments, but who's standing next to you. Now, the Remain campaign, I think, in particular, has really relied on the borrowed authority of supposedly credible institutions. George Osborne has wheeled in the IMF, the OECD, uh, to make the case for him. So what seems to matter in almost a kind of playground way is that the quality of what you say is much less important than who's standing next to you. And let me just give you one illustration. A movement known as Democracy in Europe, uh, M25, which was set up quite recently by uh, the former finance minister of Greece, Yanis Varoufakis, they had a poster which really hit home for me. And this is what their poster said. If people like Rupert Murdoch, Nigel Farage, George Galloway, Nick Griffin and Marine Le Pen want Britain to leave the EU, where does that put you? Now that's... It might be a good poster, but what it basically says is we are not going to tell you anything about the EU. We don't necessarily even have any arguments about why the EU is a good thing. We're just going to point out that the people opposing us are people you might not like. Now, that for me is just playground uh, debating. That's not an actual argument about the European Union. But this reliance on the borrowed authority of other organizations, of other people, of other leaders, is really important. And it tells us something about the way governments understand their authority. They understand their authority by getting it through other institutions and other leaders that can help them, that can help them out in a crisis. Some people said one of the turning points in the campaign was that Obama-backed Remain. Um, now, he's quite right to say what he thinks, but the idea that this somehow fundamentally transforms things, I think, uh, misses the point. Surely it's about the issues. It's about what the EU is and what the UK gets out of the EU uh, or not. So let me, uh, let me look forward a little. Let me try and paint out uh, a couple of scenarios. Uh, I want to just uh, uh, paint out one scenario which is life after Remain and the other which is life after Brexit. And I'm going to finish just very quickly on what all this means when it comes to trying to define what Europe is and what it means to be European. Now life after Remain... If you were to ask me what I think the result would be, I would say that on balance, I still think the result is likely to be a vote for Remain. Uh, we don't live in an age of great experimentation. People, I think, are generally quite risk-averse. And whatever you may say about Brexit, it reflects a number of uh, different risks. So I'd still be surprised if it happened. Now, life after Remain, I think, would be something like this. There would be a collective sigh of relief across the whole of Europe, um, there would probably be some sort of attitude along the lines of forgive and forget, very generous towards the Brits. We're glad that you voted the right way. We'll reward you in some, uh, in some, in some form. But the EU has a long history of not reforming itself after a crisis. I remember after the European parliamentary elections in 2014, a columnist for the Financial Times, Gideon Rachman, uh, wrote a piece where he, he basically said, and this I think was his headline, the European Union cannot ignore the populist howl. And those of you who remember 2014, a number of uh, parties, uh, challenger, anti-establishment parties, uh, did extremely well. 
Now, what did the EU do? Did it um, take stock of this populist howl? Absolutely not. It did absolutely nothing at all. It did exactly what Rackman said it couldn't do. It ignored totally the populist howl. So nothing much, I think, would change after Remain, and the EU would probably move, continue to move in a slightly more flexible direction, partly because the Brits would be there pushing it, but also because that is simply the nature of the European Union today. It is a flexible organisation where some countries are members of everything, some other countries are members of a bit of it, um, and it's very open to, uh, to being this multi-level club, um, and that's, I think, the direction in which it would, it, which it would go. We are, I have to say, further than we've ever been uh, uh, from constructing some sort of European federal state, uh, whatever the Eurosceptics uh, tell you. But uh, if that's the legacy for the EU, the legacy of Remain, I think, in this country um, would be, I think, the following. Um, now, there would obviously be some party political consequences. It's not clear that Cameron would stay in power even if there's a Remain vote unless it's an extremely strong one. But the consequences for the Labour Party would also be quite serious. Corbyn has basically refused to campaign for Remain, um, and that has important consequences because the vast majority of his party supports the European Union. Um, and so the civil war within the Labour Party will only, will only continue. But I don't think we should worry too much about the politicians. They will patch things up quite successfully. Um, that's what they do. Uh, those of you who followed the London mayoral elections may have seen a few days afterwards David Cameron and Sadiq Khan sharing a platform and patting each other on the back. This was after a vicious campaign uh, between the two, the two parties. So politicians do stick together and they will manage uh, life after Remain. But I think the real legacy of Remain will be a deep distrust uh, in British politics um, people, I think, will be even more sceptical about politicians than they were before. I think this climate of disenchantment with politics will enter into a deeper and more morbid and more pathological phase. Let me ask you, who will trust that the Bank of England is independent after the 23rd of June when it was so heavily politicised uh, by the government and backed the Remain campaign so, so strongly? Very few people will, I think. And that legacy of distrust, which already is omnipresent in British politics, will become even more active and even more powerful. So, Remain, I think, in many ways would be a pyrrhic victory. Uh, what, would be life, what would life be like after Brexit? Many of you may be wondering about this. Uh, certainly there would be a moment of panic, I think. Um, within Whitehall, there's no doubt lots of contingency planning around Brexit, uh, that we just don't know about. That's what bureaucracies do, is that they plan for, for various outcomes. But there would be, I think, panic. I find it very difficult to believe that, that uh, David Cameron and George Osborne would simply step aside and let Boris Johnson step into 10 Downing Street. I think if we think there's a civil war in the Tory party now, there will be a real struggle after Brexit to avoid having somebody like Boris Johnson become Prime Minister. A real struggle. Cameron and Osborne will not just let him waltz his way in. Um, but as I said, you know, these politicians will manage to uh, deal with that in some, in some way. Panic will be followed by process. There is a process in place. There are legal processes in place. Uh, people talk about Article 50 of the EU treaties. There is some speculation about whether Article 50 will actually be triggered. Uh, the House of Commons might be tempted to not recognise the result of the referendum if it's incredibly close. Now, that's what lawyers tell you. I just don't believe it. Uh, what is legally possible is not the same as what is politically possible. I think Article 50 probably would be triggered. 
And I think there would be a relatively ordered process of negotiation for the UK to leave. And the reason why it would be quite ordered is that the one thing that the EU doesn't want is to create uncertainty about the rest of the EU and in particular about the Eurozone. That, I think, is what people are afraid of. Markets are not that concerned about the British economy, which they think is pretty tough and will be able to survive, but they're very concerned about the future of the Eurozone. And so if the EU engages in some sort of nasty um, um, and vicious attack on, on the Brits and tries to negotiate something really tough... Um, questions will just be asked about the viability uh, of the Eurozone and who will, be, who will be next, and that's what they want to avoid. So I think there will be an ordered negotiation. But there will be one big difference, and this, I think, is a, a crucial difference. After Brexit, I think, um, the practice of blame avoidance, which is one of the most prevalent things in our political culture today, will become more difficult. Um, blaming Brussels for a number of different things and explaining policy outcomes as being obligations foisted onto us by Brussels is simply the way politics is conducted and understood in this country. Now, if you're no longer a member of the European Union, how does that work? Who do you blame? Who takes responsibility? These are the kinds of questions that I think will be raised in the event of Brexit. And one of the reasons I think that the civil service has been so willing to be politicised in favour of the Remain campaign is that those civil servants, people working in Whitehall, officials uh, in the Treasury, for instance, or officials in various government departments, they do not know what their diary would look like if the UK was no longer a member of the EU. They spend so much time going to Brussels, taking part in policy meetings, that they don't know what they would do with themselves. They genuinely do not know. This is an existential question for members of the British Civil Service. So um, I think that's one of the reasons why they've been willing to be politicised, not just because they've been forced by their, by their ministers. Now, Brexit would transform that. Now, let me just give you an example. The example is immigration. Now, immigration is overwhelmingly understood in this country as something that is done to us, an obligation that comes to us by being members of the single market. Now, as I said before, immigration is very um, likely to stay the same uh, more or less, after a UK exit from the single market. The composition of immigrants might change a bit. There might be less migrants coming from the EU and more coming from, uh, from outside the EU. But immigration plays a systematic and structural uh, role in the British economy and in the British growth model. Okay? That, is simply, that is simply the case. Um, now, if we imagine a scenario after Brexit where basically the rules on immigration stay the same, um, I think there is one fundamental difference, which is that they would be the result of some sort of acknowledgement that this is a fundamental part of what the UK is as a society and as an economy. This is something that enables us to, to grow as a society. It's not something that is foisted onto us as a result of being a member of the single market. Now, even if the policy on immigration does not change one bit, does not change an iota, that will be a fundamental difference because immigration policy will be experienced as, as the result of a decision made by the majority of British people. Uh, they can decide on it again when it comes to an election. It will not be experienced as an obligation foisted onto the UK by being a member of the single market. And that, I think, makes the world, uh, the world of difference. OK, let me just finish on something a little bit more speculative uh, this referendum has made me think a lot, and writing the book made me think a lot about what it means to be European. 
Now, in the book, I say very clearly we shouldn't confuse the EU with Europe. Um, Angela Merkel may claim that the EU is Europe and Europe is the EU, but she's not right. Those things are distinctive. But if we accept that being European or Europe is not exactly the same as the institutions of the EU, then it still begs the question of what it means to be European. Now, I was very struck by uh, some things that I read on Twitter. I spend too much of my life on Twitter these days. Um, But there was one tweet in particular that really struck me, and it was the following. Uh, Flying London to Berlin on an airline owned by a Greek. I'm guessing that's EasyJet. Pilot called Luigi. Hashtag got to love Europe. Let me just ask you to pause just for a second and to ask yourselves whether that's also the conception that you have of what it means to be uh, European. So in my view, uh, a statement like that, which is very common, I've seen it a lot, and a lot of people, when they talk about why they're voting Remain, say something along those lines. What that reflects for me is the thin cosmopolitanism uh, that comes from market integration. It's this association of being European that's basically the same as having some exotic things in your supermarket, being able to travel across Europe. Uh, it's the Erasmus experience, the cultural titillation of, of being able to visit different European countries. Uh, it's the product of market integration, but it's understood uh, by many people as what, it, as what the essence of being a European, uh, a European is. Now, I think that's a very superficial um, and very thin account of what Europe means or what it means to be European. Um, I don't think we should base um, identities, political and social identities, simply on the basic realities of market integration. Um, let me cast your mind back to the height of the Euro crisis, 2010, 2011. <clears throat> what we saw there was the reality that Europe doesn't exist as a socially integrated society. There is no European societies. There are only national societies and national economies. At the height of the Euro crisis, you had all of these stereotypes about the prosperous north, the hard-working northerners, and these lazy southerners. It felt like Europe was back in the 1950s. And what it tells us is that the European Union, as it exists today, is not a project of social integration. There is very little social integration that takes place. And of the kind that does take place, it's this very shallow, superficial uh, integration that comes from just being in a single market where you can travel a bit and have airline pilots called Luigi. Um, But um, it's basically a political construction. It's something used by governments to make decisions together and to make policy together at a distance from their own societies. And those societies are still very national societies. Politics across Europe is very national, even if policy-making has become very uh, European. So this is what I want to leave you with, is to try and get you to think a little bit more about what you think it means to be European. Uh, And my pitch to you is the following. Um, I think we should be thinking more in terms of internationalism than in terms of the EU. And what that means to me is the following. Internationalism is not about getting rid of nation-states, but it's about finding something that is universal, that connects different national populations, whilst also accepting that the reality of politics still takes place through these national uh, states, through these national populations, these national political experiences. Now, what is that universal thing today in Europe? 
We do have a union in Europe. We have a kind of union. And what kind of union is it? I think it's a union of disenchantment, a union of disaffection, a union of cynicism about what politics can achieve and what politics is for and what politicians are for. Now, what's amazing is that unites East and West. It unites North and South. There are no differences, no cultural differences here. That is a common experience. Now, at the moment, that's something very negative, a union of disenchantment. But I think it could be something that we could transform into a much more positive sentiment going forward. And it's something that I think could be the basis for a genuine European internationalism. But we have to accept that that may not work through the EU. That may not even involve the EU at all. Um, but I think what it means to be European today is genuinely, and through this referendum uh, 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 in particular, up for grabs. Uh, and I think it's up to us as citizens to take it and not to leave it to our tired and cynical political elites. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, thank you very much, Chris, for this very interesting and certainly uh, thought-provoking um, talk. And when I listened to your talk, just thing, one thing came to mind. Do you think there's less of a gap between citizens and government in other Western democracies uh, outside of Europe? Is there less um, possibility for blame avoidance? Outside of Europe? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, there will be elections in the United States which suggest that that's not the case. Um, I think the choice between Trump and Clinton uh, is proof that there is something wrong um, in U.S. politics as well. Um, but these are, you know, these are candidates, certainly Trump in particular, that commands a lot of support precisely because he incarnates this rage against the establishment. Um, so I'm not convinced that, uh, that there are um, you know, places where things are so much better. I mean, there are obviously lots of differences. Uh, countries that have a more recent experience of democracy may have more faith in democracy and there may be more faith in the relationship between governments and citizens. Um, but I think in some ways Europe is the future also for a lot of these, these countries. All right, um, let's open up to the floor. So um, we have about half an hour left. Um, we will take questions in groups of three. Please um, state uh, your name and also your institutional affiliation, if applicable, and uh, please be brief. Okay, the gentleman in the front, and then uh, the two uh, at the very back. Yes, I'm a consultant. And my question is, you don't think that what is missing is this type of strategical approach of, union, of European Union? in order to create economy. And that's what was missing in the last 30 years. If you think about all the funds that have been implemented in Europe in a different way, no production, this is because exactly this is what you just mentioned, this kind of uh, not having a leadership and not know more, let's say, the bottom-up in order that you can design and implement the Thank you. Then there were two questions at the very back. Yeah. At the very back, I think. The very back, yeah. Thank you. Is this on? It is, I think it is on. No? Mine is working, I think. Yeah. Is it on there? Speak up, speak up. Yeah, is it working? Yep. Right, good. 
Uh, thanks, Chris. And this is a terrific book. I urge everybody to buy it. Um, my question is... Can you tell us who you are, please? Many people, are, uh, many people who may be tempted to vote remain are very worried about uh, the advantage that the political right will take from a vote for Brexit. So what are your views on that? Okay, for, for all um, questions in general, please state your name and your institutional affiliation. Okay, uh, my name is uh, Adam Somerset. <clears throat> I'm an occasional writer for the uh, political think tank in uh, Cardiff. Uh, with the politics are very different. In fact, where I live, there is a five-party coalition for various reasons uh, for um, remaining in. Uh, the, the politicians you didn't mention were the uh, premiers in Cardiff and uh, Edinburgh. And Nicola Sturgeon, for one, has actually questioned the legitimacy of another country, namely England, um, determining an issue of such importance for her own country. I was just wondering, as, as a political scientist, what implications of secession coming about would have for the borders of the United Kingdom? All right, thank you. Yeah, three very interesting questions. Sure. So I think, um, I mean, the European Union doesn't have a very good record in achieving growth in Europe and achieving economic growth. Um, and there have been numbers of reports trying to explore why that is the case. Um, and I think my explanation is the following. One is that the Eurozone as a, as a project um, has not been very successful, um, uh, to say the least, um, and in many ways I think is an obstacle to growth today. Um, and there are people who are beginning to say that it's time to rethink this um, um, in, in quite a profound way. But the other thing is, is that the main policy-making agents in Europe um, are still its states, um, not the EU. The EU is not a redistributive organ, um, and it's not responsible for the kinds of policies that I think can generate growth. These are still the nation-states. Um, however, because so many things are done at the European level, um, there's no real incentive on the part of national governments to accept that. Um, and nor do people really take them very seriously when they say that they're the ones who can make policies. So you have, one, I mean, one of the riddles of the European Union is that sovereignty has not been transferred to Brussels, um, but it has been diluted. It seems to have disappeared without reappearing somewhere else. And I think that applies very firmly to economic policy. Um, but there are things that governments can't do because they're against EU rules. Um, to support an industry, for instance, on the part of a government generally falls foul of the state aid rules um, that exist in the single market. It's seen as not as unfair competition. And I think that limits what governments can do in economic, uh, in economic policy. A consequence of Brexit is to empower the right wing of the Tory party, was what uh, Nicola Sturgeon said today. Um, and I think we have to be very clear. Um, Brexit is simply about the UK and whether or not it remains a member of the European Union. That is it. That is it. Um, it doesn't have any necessary policy consequences. They are, they are, that, that would be up to a UK government to negotiate with the remaining 28 member states. Brexit is compatible with a whole range of different policies depending on how the negotiation goes. It's also the case that Brexit um, does not necessarily mean anybody gets into power. Uh, there is a political fallout, absolutely, and it may be that somebody like Boris Johnson manages to make his way into, um, into 10 Downing Street. That is a possibility. Um, but these people, if they do end up uh, running the country, are people that we can uh, uh, kick out at election time. 
There are people that are elected representatives. Um, and so I don't really, I don't really buy this, uh, this argument which that the political consequences of Brexit are so bad that we have to not um, vote for it. The only way to guarantee policies and politicians that you like is to win majorities through them. Uh, is to build majorities for policies that you like um, and get people elected to enact those policies. That's the only guarantee. The EU is no guarantee of having government that you like. Um, for me, this whole question, and we're seeing it now playing itself out, is the Faustian bargain that liberals make with democracy. Um, they would rather give up a bit of democracy in order to cement and to tie in certain policies that they like. Uh, but nothing ties in those policies. The only thing that guarantee policies are building firm majorities in your country uh, in support of them. So that would be my answer to, uh, to Nicola Sturgeon. On the secession question, it's interesting. I mean, everybody has said, and this has become one of the conventional wisdoms, that if the UK were to vote to leave, Scotland would then have another referendum. People are beginning to say, I think, that that's not so self-evident. Um, and I think Sturgeon has been more cautious on that. Um, the reason is the following. Uh, if the UK were to leave um, the single market, and if Scotland were to become independent, then you would have, across the England and Scotland border, a single market border. Now, England is the most important market for Scotland, by far. Um, why would it want to construct a single market border across the England-Scotland border um, unless it really has to? There would be a serious economic consequence there. Um, so I find it quite unlikely. Um, and there also doesn't seem to be any obvious appetite in Scotland for having another, another referendum. Um, but I do accept that uh, the result inevitably will be studied from the perspective of the different nations of the UK. And people will look very, very closely at whether there was a majority in Scotland that was the opposite of the majority that was formed in England. And if that is the case, then lots of people will start trying to ask questions about that and to challenge the legitimacy of the result. That tells me that the UK, as a constitutional state, is not set in stone and has a lot of challenges. But I find it unlikely that Scotland would decide to go for another referendum um, and to try and secede from the UK were the UK to leave the, the EU. All right, further questions, please. Uh, yeah, the gentleman at the uh, centre back over there, um, and the gentleman with the hat, and uh, behind there, I guess. What? So it's uh, at the back here. Hi, uh, John Wells, uh, no academic background. Um, we often hear um, in the past that the UK plays by the rules. Uh, we ratify uh, all of the legislation coming through the European Parliament whilst the Greeks and the French seem to bend those rules uh, and seem to get away. I think one, one poll said that the Greeks only ratified some 48 or 50 percent of, of the legislation coming through Europe. So what are the penalties if, if, if those rules are ratified and, and why do the French and the Greeks seem to bend those rules that we all do? Right, with the, um, with the blue hat over here, please. Yeah, um, can I talk about trade? Um, I think, Can you um, tell us your name, please, first? Can I'm, tell Sean, us your name? I'm from um, a social group, London um, European Club. Um, trade, we have lost a lot of jobs to, to Asia through trade. Like they're outsourcing jobs all the time. So who's protecting European jobs? Because what people want 
is a job and a job that pays. And that is, we are losing that all the time to, to Asia where corporations exploit the employees there and pay them very small salaries. So why aren't we building up Eastern Europe, investing in Eastern Europe? Because that's, isn't that what the EU is about, trade, trading with the member states? And uh, that is diminishing all the time. Thank you. Thank you. And then there was a question behind, yeah. Hi. Thanks. That was a great talk. Thanks. Um, I think you touched on contradictions, which were logical contradictions. But in a way, people give reasons when they're asked for reasons. But if the fundamental reason is an emotional one, then sometimes they're given spurious reasons. So perhaps there is no real paradox. Perhaps it's like the famous line of, it's just not that into you. For whatever reason, the British public just isn't that into Europe. And I personally, I prefer that it were. But um, it doesn't seem to be, and perhaps therefore that's why we get spurious reasons. Sorry, I didn't give my name. It's Tom Dore, but I have no particular affiliation. Except Thank you. to be part of the same group as Sean. All right, thanks. Okay. Um, so there is a lot of discussion about who follows rules, um, and the UK is pretty good. Um, but I think it's a little bit misleading. I mean, the European Union is based on rules, but there's always a lot of flexibility about how these rules are, are implemented. Um, now, for instance, let me give you an example. Um, the European Commission is famous because... Um, it has this legislation on the shape of cucumbers, for instance. It legislates in a very specific way the shape of vegetables. Boris Johnson recently said that it's about the number of bananas you can have in a bunch, uh, which that particular one I don't think is true, but there are some very specific regulations like that. Now, the reason why the Commission regulates in such a way is not because it's so fussy and wants to get involved in the day-to-day -day, you know, things that, uh, uh, that colour our lives, it's because the Commission is weak. It doesn't have the power to oversee its own legislation. That falls to member states. So it creates this very detailed legislation in the hope that it can somehow control how it's implemented by being detailed, but in practice it doesn't have powers of implementation. Now, in, 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 in member states, national governments often create very general forms of legislation because they know that that can be implemented by its, their own bureaucracies and the monitoring of that implementation takes place by our own civil servants and local governments, etc. Um, so the Commission doesn't have those powers. But it means also that when it comes to following the rules, when it comes to ratification, um, that's outside the control of the EU. It's up to national governments, national parliaments, uh, and to how they ratify it. And in my view, there are lots of entirely legitimate reasons why you would, you would hold off on ratifying some aspects of EU law. Um, for instance, it may be that it's laws on, I don't know, on the way certain industries work that really challenges the, the way your own industries, your own national industries work, that it poses questions of competition, it poses questions of, um, of viability of these industries. So obviously, these are complicated matters. So I don't think it should be a badge of honor that countries have ratified everything and others haven't. For me, that plays into the stereotypes that some countries behave well and some countries behave badly. The Commission actually is quite pragmatic and often lets countries off the hook for very good reasons. That's the nature of, you know, of the European Union. It's not set in stone. And ratification, I think, is a bit of a, it's a, bit of a red herring. Um, 
on trade and on jobs, uh, we have to be pretty clear about the, uh, the European Union as an economic actor. Um, the EU was set up um, back in the early 1950s when it focused on the industries of coal and steel as a mechanism for rationalising what many people considered an increasingly uncompetitive industry. Um, now, coal and steel faced a lot of pressures of competition, particularly from the United States, and people felt that those industries in those core countries are not viable anymore. We're going to have to get rid of a lot of jobs. We're going to have to rationalise these industries, make them more competitive. So it was a kind of cartel that tried to preserve those industries and also enable them to be modernised and rationalised. And there was a specific fund set up in the coal and steel community to help people um, uh, uh, to look after people who are losing their jobs. So that's what it is. It's a process of rationalising economic activity in a very competitive, um, a competitive and increasingly global market. Um, now, it's not really changed. Uh, the Treaty of Rome was created, and it was a common customs union, so that there was a, an, an external tariff for all of the members... And the reason why is that when, a, when an economy grows very quickly, and European economies were booming in the 50s and, uh, and 60s, when economies grow, prices tend to go up, okay, which means that imports tend to then appear a bit cheaper. And that poses real questions uh, for, a balance of, for the country's balance of payments. The UK had all these economic problems in the 50s and 60s because every time it would grow, it would then have a massive trade deficit and it would then, um, and, and, and would then crash. That was the stop-go cycle of the UK economy in the 50s and 60s. And the Treaty of Rome was designed as a way of introducing protectionist measures um, in, order to, uh, in order to protect European industries against these cheaper imports. So it's, that, it's been that story the whole, the whole time. Um, what I'm less convinced of, to be honest, is that that... Um, is successful or that it's best done at the European, at the European level. Uh, when it's done at the EU level, it makes it possible to evade the kind of difficult questions that are posed when you try and rationalise an industry. And that was part of the reasons why it was done at the European level um, in the first place. Uh, the final uh, question, um, to say that Britain just isn't that into Europe, um, I, don't, I don't see that at all. Um, the UK, uh, when it joined in 1973 and then confirmed its membership in 1975, has since then been basically one of the leading members of, uh, of European, uh, uh, the European Union and of ever closer union. Uh, the EU looks a lot like it does today because of the, uh, the role that the UK government has played in pushing certain things that it likes. Enlargement, for instance, was very strongly pushed by the UK and resisted by countries like France for quite a long time. So the EU, as it is today, is because of the central role that the, the UK has played. Um, the UK isn't some sort of odd one out in Europe. Um, this is a message that I really want to push. The referendum in this country is the tip of an iceberg. Okay? Um, there are a number of other countries that are talking about having a referendum. The Dutch, for instance, um, would like a referendum on EU membership. The Italians have been talking about it for some time. Nobody would know what the result would be in those countries. Um, it is very likely that the result would be just as close as, as this one. So the tip of the iceberg uh, for me, or the iceberg, is this growing sentiment that somehow things are not quite right with the European Union, and we're certainly not confident that our governments are acting in our best interest. Um, and so the kind of discussions that are taking place in the UK in the course of this campaign absolutely are echoed across the rest of Europe. 
um, and they will come up next year in some of the national elections. There are big elections in Germany, France, the Netherlands and Italy and all the same issues are going to come up again. So this is not just a British affair, this is much more fundamental about the state of European politics today. Right, thank you. Are there any questions on the balcony? Uh, yeah, in front with the blue shirt and the white shirt there. Thank you. My name is Kevin Darcy. I've been a uh, secretary of the Association of European Journalists for about 20 years. So I spend a lot of time explaining to the rest of the world how the Commission is supposed to work. I don't go into whether it does work. But you and I, I think, both agree that uh, it's not getting anywhere. In fact, it's going backwards because of what you describe as really the incompetence uh, and the uh, incomp yeah, incompetence, as I would, of politicians. They don't know how to tell anyone what's going on, so they don't. Um, this is, adds to the disillusionment. I know you've written a paper on democracy without parties. Have you ever considered writing a paper on democracy without politicians? Yes, with the, with the white shirt over to the... Thank you. I don't... Does it work? Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, that was a great lecture. My name is Peter. I'm a LSE alum. Um, I would try to phrase this as a question, although I, I suspect it might be more of a comment. But um, what you, you take as evident, and I, and I have a particular issue with, um, is that sort of idea that uh, just because people don't understand the European Union or they don't think it's a good thing, then it doesn't actually work. So the causality there, I think, you, you take popular opinion to be reflective of reality. Um, and I think that as a way of thinking has come up in quite a few of your arguments, and I just wanted to sort of take issue with that. But thank you. Okay, one more question uh, here at the bottom in the dark shirt. Um, can you hear me? So it seems that the European Union was found on the principle of cooperation and like spreading democracy, especially to Eastern European countries, and supporting that. From what you've um, been explaining in the lecture, it seems that um, there's a democratic deficit on two counts. On the one hand, in Europe, in Brussels, there's the democratic deficit that we all know about. Also, there's one now that I wasn't aware of that actually is pretty weak. And rather, governments are using it as an excuse for either, say, not being able to you know, implement policy in their home countries or not doing anything at all. And so you kind of got two, account, two cases of democratic deficit. And don't you think this, this is actually you know, the key point of the Leave campaign? Although I actually kind of believe I'm firmly in the way, yeah, like take back control is quite important for a kind of democratic process. <coughs> Thank you. Okay, great questions. Um, should we have democracy without politicians? Um, so I think one way of thinking about the contemporary crisis of democracy um, is to say that it's a crisis of, to use a slightly abstract term, it's a crisis of political mediation. Now, what we tend to believe today, I think, is that our interests can't be represented by anyone else in any particularly um, good way. We think of parties, uh, we think of unions, we think of any collective organisation as basically a kind of special interest. 
as interest groups that just follow their own, their own interests, that they don't really represent us. Um, so we tend to look for answers outside of politics, um, which is why we often rely so much on experts to somehow tell us how things work that are non-partisan and are, that are neutral, as if something like that can exist um, on political and social uh, questions. Um, I'm not against political mediation. I don't think political parties are working very well. Um, but we live in a society where we have to get some sense of what we think collectively. Um, we have to group together in some way. And we have to accept that we can be represented in some way. Um, and I think there's no, you know, that's nothing bad about that and there's not much of an alternative to it. Uh, but there is a crisis of mediation where we don't believe that that is possible. So I think we have to try and get back um, or redefine what we think mediation means in politics. Um, and it might not mean parties the way they exist today. Absolutely not. Um, parties operate a little bit like a cartel today, a political cartel. Um, so that has to change. But I don't think the principle of mediation in politics is a, is a bad one um, at all, on the, on the contrary. This question up here, um, well, uh, to confuse reality with what people think uh, is going on. Um, yes, I mean, I think the interpretation given of the European Union by both sides of the campaign, I've tried to explain as, uh, by saying that it's, it's, it doesn't get the EU right. It exaggerates the, the importance and the force of the European Union. So there are a lot of misconceptions. Um, but I don't think people are wrong in having some sort of gut instinct, which is to say that the European Union in some way whether it's composed of EU officials or by our own governments, is in some way cut off from our concerns <clears throat> and doesn't clearly represent the things that we uh, uh, think about and are concerned about. And that there's some way in which that it enables governments to shy away from being accountable to us. That's a very instinctive thing, I think, that a lot of people grasp, and I think they're entirely right. Um, so I tend to have probably a lot more faith in people's opinions or popular opinions um, than you might, uh, you might have your, yourself. Let me end on this question about taking back control. I mean, this has been the slogan. Uh, Dominic Cummings, who manages the Leave campaign, has been very successful in coining this idea of vote, leave, take control. You are quite right that it's a powerful slogan and taking control is something that people want. They want to feel as if they can control their lives. Nobody wants to drift through life. People want to feel as if they're masters of their own fate. Um, but my question to the Leave campaign and my question to Cummings is, take control from whom exactly? For him and for the Leave campaign, it's to take control from Brussels, to take control back from the European Union. <clears throat> And I think I've tried to explain that that is simply an illusion. It's this mirage. It's not about taking control back from Brussels because control hasn't been given over to Brussels. Our government spends a lot of its time sending its civil servants and its ministers to Brussels to take part in uh, uh, making legislation. So, yes, uh, take control, but I think we have to take control back on our own political system and over our own politicians and our own parties. So it's not <clears throat> about taking control from Brussels. Um, it's about taking control over politics and over national and domestic politics. Uh, so yes, I agree with that, but I think the target of the criticism is simply, uh, is simply wrong.
Thank you, Chris. Um, we have a great diverse mix in the audience this uh, evening, but so far the questions have only been asked by men. So I would like to ask any women or people who identify as female to ask questions. Yes, uh, right here in front. When it is she and Let's collect one more question. Yeah, uh, right here in front. We have the microphone. Okay, please, uh, yeah, we can repeat your question. Let's go ahead. So the question was whether um, disability rights might be under threat if the um, UK were to leave the European Union. Yeah. Uh, one more question? Yes, please. So the economic issue, um, I mean, there have been a number of studies that have been made, not least by the Treasury, by the Bank of England, by the OECD. Um, I think um, there is an element of bias here. So let me give you an example. Um, nobody denies, I think, that it's an unknown thing. Leaving the single market would create lots of uncertainties. That's absolutely clear. Uncertainty has economic costs. But the UK is dominated by the service sector. 80% of UK exports are service-based exports. Um, people have said that the UK would then be cut out from the single market in services, which is very important for, for the UK. Now, what I found surprising is that nobody has really talked about the possibility for service sector companies to set up subsidiaries in somewhere like the Republic of Ireland, in a country that is a member of the single market, in order to access the kind of passporting rights that are so essential for service-based uh, service companies. Now, we know all the time, we know that businesses all the time set up subsidiaries in order to do uh, um, attractive tax deals for themselves. Yet nobody has said that a service-based economy could, and businesses could, simply set up subsidiaries that would allow them to access the passporting rights of the single market. Now, I don't think that sounds particularly complex to me, um, and it would take into account a lot of the assumed losses that would come from being outside the single market. Um, but there is an overwhelming amount of uncertainty around this, um, which means I'm always a bit suspicious when people say the answer is so obvious. So George Osborne, for instance, told us that house prices might fall in the case of Brexit. 
he seemed to suggest that was a bad thing. A lot of people are probably cheering. Um, I don't know what planet George Osborne actually lives on. Um, but I think it's actually quite possible that the reverse would happen. Um, the UK, I think, in the event, in the event of Brexit, um, everyone is going to be asking who's next in the Eurozone. The markets are not worried about the UK economy. They're worried about the future of the Eurozone. In a context where some real pressure is put on some European economies, and at the moment Portugal seems to be possibly the weakest link in the Eurozone, um, the UK becomes a safe haven. It becomes a safe haven for a lot of things, including a lot of capital, uh, which gets invested in things like property. Um, so I think it's quite possible that there will be a safe haven effect um, after Brexit, um, rather than some of the effects that are being predicted. But the answer is that it's very difficult to know. So I think... On balance, you probably have to say that the economics is maybe not something that has to be decisive. You have to vote on some other principle, something else that you know a bit more about, that you can be a bit more certain about. Um, because I think on the economics, uh, it can go in lots of different directions. And I think there would be short-term instability followed by some return to economic fundamentals in the medium to the long term. And if you look at what the markets are doing, the prices of the longer-term assets that you can buy in the UK, those prices are as low as they, as they ever have been. People are not pricing in to the UK economy long-term instability. They're pricing in short-term uncertainty. Uh, and that, I think, tells us, tells us a lot. On disability rights, this doesn't just apply to disability rights. This applies to a whole range of things. The only way in which you can be confident that certain rights will be protected is to consistently have governments that are elected on the back of saying that they will protect them. It's a much bigger difference, I think, on whether you have um, a Tory government or a Labour government or some sort of coalition or some new party. The future of British politics uh, will shape much more these rights than being within the European Union. Um, the European Union doesn't guarantee rights. Um, it piggies back on national rights and codifies them. Um, but as we've seen, politics changes in different countries, uh, in lots of different directions. And the only guarantee, I think, for the things that you value uh, in terms of what government does for you is to, uh, is to get the right government selected and to try and get majorities for the thing that you, that, that you think is important. That's, I think, as far as... And there is no guarantee in a democracy. It only goes as long as you can build those majorities uh, for those policies. The final question on internationalism... Um, I suppose what I meant was this, um, which is that we think of the European Union as being the best thing that we have that incarnates some sense of being European at the level of values. Some common existence as Europeans is represented in the European Union. I suppose my message was that the evidence over the last few years is that that's not really the case. Um, over the course of the last few years where we've had a serious economic crisis, a lot of people have talked about solidarity in Europe. Um, but they've also pointed out that there isn't really any evidence of solidarity. The word is there, but it's empty. Um, and what we have, actually, are these national uh, attitudes to one another, often very hostile and very pejorative. Um, and I suppose what I mean by internationalism is that there is something, I think, that binds us all together, some sort of uh, set of shared concerns... Um, but we do exist as national societies still. Uh, we're very diverse and very different. And so the question is, how do you combine those differences without pretending that they don't exist? Because they do exist, and in some cases they've become more important over time rather than less. 
But how do you combine those differences with something a bit more universal, something that can really give a sense to what it means to be European? Um, and what I meant about this union of disenchantment is that I do think that's something that is common across different European societies. Whatever the difference is, there is this shared feeling of fatalism and scepticism about politics, which I think could be transformed into something much more positive. Um, and internationalism doesn't do away with a nation state, but it tries to find some point of universal connection between different nation states. Um, and I think that's very different from the current project of the European Union. And we have to think beyond the European Union and be more imaginative and creative about the kind of Europe that we, that we want. All right, that's a strong statement at the end, and we have arrived at the end of our uh, event. I would like to thank you all for coming, and thank Chris for giving the